Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky. Lucky in line at the deli, I guess. Aha! In my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, I'm Maria. And I'm Mike. And we're Team, team Ready. ready. Black Hills Energy knows your home is where your heart is, so they want you to be ready. It's all about keeping you safe, prepared, and making your home as energy efficient as possible. Everything from how to weatherize your home to how to stay safe during extreme weather. Be ready for anything. Go to blackhillsenergy.com slash team ready. going on belly up sports fam shaka cummings parker ainsworth your two teachers of great sports biggest issues welcome to f in sports parker how are you doing sir doing pretty well today man caught a little xfl yesterday uh, houston came away with a close win pj walker is the man how about yourself so i watched the fight yesterday so we're recording on a sunday but watch the uh tyson fury deontay wilder fight which was it was fun to watch. Tyson Fury is old school dominant heavyweight. Like when I watched boxing when I was a kid, he's different than the guys like Mike Tyson. He actually looks a lot like a guy like Lennox Lewis and a guy like Riddick Bowe because he's just so much physically bigger and he's so skilled for right. his size. Like you don't expect him to move the way that he does. It's weird. He would be a guy that if he got involved in basketball, he would be a dominant big because he's able to move. He's light on his feet. He has a lot of athleticism to him. He's got a lot of quick, even though he doesn't have a lot of fast. And, of course, that translates to knocking people out, which is what he did to <laughs> Deontay Wilder. Right. And I'm imagining those guys will get together again and it'll probably be like $350 million, $400 million if those guys fight again, which is crazy. No, the rematches, I mean, I don't know if they got it anywhere near booked already, but it's coming. It's for sure coming. Yeah, I think they got the rematch clause in the contract. So that's just a basically a blank check. So you can fill in how much money do you want to make for this rematch. It's going to be awesome for them. Uh, we got lots of great claims this week. We're going to talk Rob Manfred. We're going to talk about the NFL, the new CBA that's coming out. 
And we're going to go with a math lesson today where we discuss Elam endings and how it could impact the NBA going forward. So without further ado, Parker, you ready to go? Ready to go, Shaq. So Parker, our first claim today about Rob Manfred, his handling of the Astros scandal. The claim is Rob Manfred should be asked to resign based on his handling of the scandal involving the Houston Astros. So for folks who don't know, Parker's a huge Houston Astros fan, so obviously this particular scandal hits home a little bit. Uh, and I'm curious as to what you think about Rob Manfred and how he's handled it to this point. What do you think, Parker? Well, it's an interesting claim, Shaka, because you know, I know I've told you, but I, I really do enjoy all Houston sports, and the Astros are, have been really fun the last handful of years, and it's, felt really, it's been a really great thing to be a part of. And uh, when people ask me, like, oh, what do you think about the Houston Astros thing? I go back to this picture in my head. My dad sent me this text of this, you know, house neighbor with a flagpole out front and out front the day after the scandal was official and people got suspended and then fired and whatnot. Uh, the flagpole had an Astros flag at half mast on the front. And, and I just, I sit there and I think, oh man, that is exactly the gut punch this whole thing has felt like. But what I will say is that that's not really. This isn't about Houston as much as it's about Manfred um, and his his misjudgment of the whole thing. So it's an interesting angle for the claim. Um, should he be forced to resign? I think it's important to like think about that. Like that means will twenty three of the thirty owners decide that he should no longer work for them because technically he's their employee, right? And he he did this whole orchestration with this massive punishment if you will in the sense that it's never been seen before like it's a bigger punishment than things we've seen in our lifetimes it's also been received as not enough by everyone <laughs> like across the board there is no one who says oh yeah he's handled this perfectly everyone feels like right. he's made missteps he clearly underestimated what the response to his punishment would be and he clearly assumed that there'd be a much more heartfelt apology out of the Houston Astros after the fact. Because as much as I love my Astros, when put on, even at their press conference, and they were much different in the locker room afterwards, and they were like a little more heartfelt, but they're like thought up, thought out responses in the moment in front of the press with Dusty Baker, you know, poor guy sitting there, he had nothing to do with any of this, it was poor very, Dusty. very stoic and just very plain and had not a whole lot of remorse in it. And there's no way Manfred saw that coming. Like, he did not see any of this coming after the fact. I'm sure you know he thought he handled this great, and then it got out there, and then 24 hours later, he's getting roasted for not having done enough. The claim is complicated because we're talking about losing someone's job, and he left himself without a lot of options in terms of how he could manage any misdeeds that would have been done based on the memo that he sent out from his office. The memo didn't allow him to suspend players. Then the collective bargaining agreement puts limitations on the fines that he could issue. So it feels like he boxed himself in unnecessarily, and now he has to deal with the ramifications of boxing himself in. I wonder what would be more satisfactory to Major League Baseball fans. Would it be more satisfactory, and this is definitively more difficult to do, to get rid of Rob Manfred, or would you replicate what happened with the NBA and Donald Sterling, where Adam Silver actually fired one of his bosses? He actually 
talked to the other owners, and they created a system to get Donald Sterling out. Would it feel more satisfactory? Would it be easier to do to actually come back and just say, hey, let's get rid of Jim Crane. He's, we, we could do that and maybe satiate some of the thoughts that Major League Baseball fans have. There feels like there should be some semblance of consequence that comes for him, but I don't know what that consequence is. I don't know what's fair. I don't know what makes the most sense even. Firing him means he could have done something differently, right? Because you're assuming that he handled this poorly and there was a better option when it's a really just a crappy situation that there's not a like written way to get out of it that's been done before and so on. Um, and, you know, Jeff Passan wrote a really great article last week for ESPN talking about how with labor law as it is in the United States and the Players Union as it is in the United States uh, or in the MLB and how unions work in the United States, it really wasn't as simple as he could have just, you know, suspended all the guys for a bajillion games because typically that's breaking precedent because guys don't get suspended for, you know, eons of games for stuff that happened on the field. And this is a relatively speaking, actually kind of an on the field incident and happened during games. That's not to excuse Manfred for what he did. Maybe he should have fought that case and maybe he should have said, fine, you want to take me a quarter on this, bring it on. You guys cheated or whatever. But it sounds like that there were more difficult labor laws for him to work around as far as being more strict on the players. And he took the easy way out by saying, instead of fighting those difficult fights we're just going to give you immunity and get the whole story right now um and the most common thing that people have criticized him for is not being harsher on the players in the in the cheating circle itself but coming out since then of being like you know guys that are going after astros with the baseball and pitching at their heads and stuff are going to be suspended and stuff like that and kind of getting out in front of all that um which is interesting right because you're going to punish the guys that are mad at the cheaters and not the cheaters in some way um that's certainly where he's drawn a lot of criticism, but Passon seemed to argue in his article that it wasn't that simple, and he's talking to labor lawyers, and I'm far from a labor attorney, but I, I tend to trust the four people he's got cited. <laughs> um, I, I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I don't know what I would tell him to have done differently besides going after players, if that's really what he wanted to do. We want Astro's blood. That's what we want, right? We want <laughs> Astro's blood. Um, with... With Rob Manfred, where I get conflicted is, like you mentioned, the memo that he sent out in 2017, he actually hamstrings himself. And I understand that there's a labor law that goes into it as well. But even in that memo, he says that if we find sign stealing that's done, we're going to punish the front office. Now he sends that out and he actually ends up hamstringing himself because once this isn't shared with the players, okay... The players have an easy out to say, well, listen, this memo was never shared with us, so now we can argue it. Well, and that's also, if you read Crane's statements, that's also why Crane fires, in his own words, how much you want to weigh those out. That's one of the reasons he fires Hinch and Lennow, right, is he believes that they should have gotten that memo to the players much earlier than it sounds like any report says they did. Um, and so that's why the front office guys are gone now. It's It just... It's weird. It's a weird situation. It's not as cut and dry as people want it to be. If I'm restricted in certain areas, I'm restricted in terms of fine, I'm restricted in terms of player punishment, then I say, take the reins of the things that you absolutely can control. And this gets us into the conversation that we've had multiple times, which is you can control whether or not you vacate that 2017 World Series. 
So maybe that's the direction that you should go. Now, when you do the ESPN interview and you say, oh, there's really no big deal in taking away a piece of metal, you're an idiot. That piece of metal has your name on it as much as anyone else, oh, by the way. And to minimize the impact that that consequence could have when the reality is that could be the only recourse that you could have in order to save your good name as commissioner feels incredibly short-sighted. It feels like Rob Manfred, much like I imagine Jim Crane, believed that they were going to garner public interest on their side. It's been the exact opposite. Jim Crane, no one believes that the Astros are apologetic based on the press conference that was put together spring training. And no one believes Rob Manfred handled this well based on his response to Jim Crane and the Astros press conference. So why would you minimize a potential consequence that you could use down the road? And we know that there's complications in vacating titles, especially when you consider the number of controversial incidences that baseball's had over its history, everything from the Black Sox scandal to performance-enhancing drugs. And that could have been a recourse. So why would you minimize that? Why wouldn't you come back and say, you know, that obviously feels like a very significant consequence, and then explain why you felt that wasn't the direction to go, rather than minimizing the impact of taking away a championship. He almost doesn't seem to think of this as a very, that it's a very big deal, right? And what's interesting is, I wonder if he doesn't, you know, until the backlash happened, I wonder if he didn't think this is that big of a deal. And sure, he puts, I'll put the biggest fine on this, and I'll put the, you know, suspension on these two people in the front office, and we're going to look great, because he might not think of this as a big deal, which is why he takes the tone of calling things like a hunk of metal, and then it is a big deal to everyone that cares about baseball. And he's like, oh, crap, what am I going to do now? Meanwhile, Shaka, the big, big thing I think that's hurting him and making him look more fireable is not necessarily the punishments or the whatever. It It's that Houston has not looked sorry. They really don't seem to be at all apologetic about what happened. And it's like, we're going to go out there, we're going to kick your butt again this year. And we're going to get you. Like, the, the tattoo scandal with Altuve is kind of silly. The, uh, the Correa is coming out, and he's apparently the new Houston PR guy because he's going to talk all the time. Right? He should uh, really stop talking, <laughs> too, by the way. <laughs> he really should. You know, all these guys look not sorry. And I'm not sitting here saying if they were consciously doing this, they necessarily even need to be sorry. They knew what they were doing. But I don't think that Manfred had any idea that, that was going to be how they came off. If it was just kind of fan vitriol, I think that, you know, baseball could unify and say, okay, we'll move past this because we just won't talk about it. I think he underestimated how the Dodgers would react and how the Yankees would react and how, I mean, I swear to God, I didn't know what Mike Trout's voice sounded like until this. <laughs> like, Nick Markakis, I, I honestly thought Nick Markakis was out of the league. And now I hear his voice on this. And I think that that's where he really misstepped. He just underestimated how big a deal players believed this was going to be. It's interesting because that seems to be where his missteps are in my head, is miscalculating what comes afterwards and what comes next, and what and both from Houston and from the other 29 clubs. Um, obviously, fans are going to be pissed, but fans are also fans. Fans being pissed kind of strikes me as a, you know, there's no such thing as bad 
you know, bad pub. If you're out there and the fans are talking about you, they're talking about your sport. This happened before the Super Bowl, right? We're still talking about baseball for this entirety. Before the Super Bowl, for the All-Star game, there's been major NBA news as well, big transaction week of, you know, trade deadline and so on. And we're still talking about baseball. If it were just fans, I don't think he'd be that opposed to it. He just had no idea that this much player-to-player interaction and using the media. Even guys like Poppy, right? Big Poppy's out here talking about how Mike Fires is a snitch and yada yada. Like, oh man, wait till Poppy the Red Sox needs to be quiet too. He's like Correa. Like, these guys who are talking just need to... You don't help the situation with inflammatory comments. So when you start telling Cody Bellinger needs to shut the F up, when you start saying that Mike Fires is a snitch, you guys are inflaming a situation that's already inflamed. And it right. doesn't help baseball for you to do that. It doesn't help... I mean, Correa definitively is not helping Altuve by telling At Cody all. Bellinger to be quiet. Like, I mean, At all. if if you if anything, just move forward. You know, you don't even see the Dodgers on the field this year unless it's in the World Series. So why not? They're entitled to their opinions. They're entitled to their comments. You know what? We just got to focus on going forward. We just got to focus on 2020. We just have to focus on being the best we can be and trying to win games this season and doing it clean. Why not just say that? Look at that. I just fixed the Astros. They should hire me to do their PR. <laughs> What's funny, though, is the cyclical nature of the Astros want to be past this but don't want to apologize in any real emotional form. The rest of the league kind of wants them to at least apologize for it with some real emotion to it, and they're not going to move on since. And Houston just wants to move on but won't actually sincerely apologize. This is a cyclical nature of this tornado that's going on in baseball right now amongst guys when they're not even on the field. But Manfred did not see that coming, and he maybe should have. Rob Manfred should not have undersold the idea of taking away the championship. It's the it's literally the only thing that he could have held over the Astros to say, if you don't do this to my satisfaction, then we're going to revisit whether or not you get to be 2017 World Series champions. He keeps holding on to this idea of precedent, and he's right that it that would break a lot of like we haven't gone back and told every we haven't gone back and told every team with cheaters on it of any kind that well now your world series is gone i almost kind of agree with him in the sense that so we vacate the 2017 title everyone knows what happened it's the same way with reggie bush's heisman like i love vince young and he was an incredible football player to watch play but I know he didn't win the Heisman. No matter what they do, like I, I don't feel better about that Heisman race because they took it away from Reggie Bush. I didn't like help my stomach or something like that. Like, and if players were to have championship rings taken away, then that could be the measure to say, okay, this really prevents something like this going forward. And other players would look at that and say, okay, the Astros really got punished in this thing. Now we can move forward. Because they've had a punishment that we deem is suitable, and it's going to hopefully prevent something like this from happening down the road. Which I think that regardless of whether or not Reggie Bush has done well in his personal life, I do think that other players looked at how Reggie Bush had his Heisman taken away, and they think about, I'm not going to get caught doing what Reggie did. It certainly isn't like college guys aren't getting paid on the side, though. It hadn't stopped that. It might have stopped as open or brazen or whatever you want to talk about it. And it certainly isn't happening in the city of Los Angeles or in Austin or in these bigger cities. It's not like as openly. It might be happening more openly in the smaller towns where it's easier to get away from you know, cameras and stuff like that. I, I do think it's interesting, though, in tying this back to baseball, that 
they can take the rings away and they can take the trophy away and they can make Houston take the banner down. But again, it no one doesn't know what happened on the field in those games. Like no one, no one sitting here is like, well, you know, Houston. I I don't know who won the twenty seventeen World Series. It was three years ago. We all know what happened. You know, like, and that's I think where I'm at is like. Manfred approached it in what might be the most impeachable offense by calling it a hunk of metal or, or whatever the exact verbiage was. But he's not horribly wrong in the idea that, like, so we're just going to say no one won that year? We all know what happened. <laughs> I, you know, it, it's going to be just this empty space in the history books. Like, we all know what happened. And anyone who picks up a book knows what happened 50 years from now. It's going to be talked about for a long time, you know? Well, it's, it's definitely more likely to be talked about if 2017 is vacated, right? I mean, in the short term... We all know what happened. 50 years from now, some kid just picks up that history book and sees the 2017 the Houston Astros won. And that could be their first introduction to baseball. They had no idea what scandal would have occurred because there's not an asterisk and it's not vacated. Now, if you pick up a history book as a kid 50 years from now and you look at 1994 and you see that there was no World Series played, the first thing that you do is you ask a question. Hey, what happened in 1994? And now you get to tell that story. There's no reason why that story is necessarily going to be told 50 years from now, except that baseball historians might tell the story. Um, when Altuve comes up for his Hall of Fame and when other Astro players come up for potential Hall of Fame opportunities, that's when you get to tell the story, which in my mind is another reason for Manfred to not just take that vacation of a title off the table. You could have had that, again, to hold over the Astros, explain it exactly as I'm explaining it, and then hopefully that ensures that the Astros go out and they mind their P's and Q's rather than being what they always have been. The Astros have shown us who they are. And when someone shows you who they are, believe them. They were brazen all the way through the process of building this team. I, I think we're in agreement that the claim, should he be forced to resign, is resoundingly appropriate. And it's at least worth asking. You know, if you're a teacher, right, you're taking this to our jobs. If I'm a teacher and something happens in my classroom that's unpredictable, some kid, you know, blurts out something horrible that I got to respond to or whatever, it's I'm not in trouble for necessarily creating a discussion where some kid blurts something crazy out or does something stupid. I'm in trouble for responding to it inappropriately. So as we have talked here for quite a bit, let's grade this claim out. So I think you started getting into kind of your thoughts around the grading. So um, it, I'm interested, now that you've kind of shared some of those perspectives, where would you grade the claim? It is certainly arguable enough that it would be a fairly highly graded claim. I almost wonder if it's if it's too easy a claim to make. Like, Rob Manford should be forced to resign. Like, yeah, okay, next question. Like, this isn't a complicated issue in a lot of ways. What's happened with the Astros and the level of punishment and this, that, and the other, and all the things we've talked about has been more complicated. But, like, did he botch this to the point of he might not be able to have a job anymore? Yes, of course. Like, that's not that's not a very debatable thing to me. I give it an A claim, but I would also write something on the kid's paper like, let's pick a little bit more difficult topic. <laughs> you know, I just I think it's fairly simple. I actually don't think that it's as simple because... Is this instance enough for us to overlook all of the good that Rob Manfred has done for baseball and the potential good that he could do for baseball in his role? I don't know that any one incident should 
be abundantly fireable. I mean, within reason, obviously. And so I look at this and I'm like, oh my God, you messed this up. You messed this up. You messed this up. You messed this up as royally as you can mess up anything. And I still look at the things that he's done for baseball, again, in terms of replay with the new CBA, the fact that we've had labor peace, the fact that he's been the person who's been in charge of putting in the domestic violence policy. He's the person who's been in charge of the uh, uh, performance enhancing drugs policy uh, being several increased. Of those things, several of those things were back to him in his box in the first place. Him putting in replay and having teams put in you know, replay potential rooms in their dugouts and having people having access to these camps. And him having all this, you know, work with the union about them. And, like, that's also what's backed him into this in a lot of ways, Shock. I mean, I guess. I'm, I guess that I'm not willing to say that Rob Manfred should have had the foresight to say, hey, when I put an instant replay, some team's going to use that to cheat and steal signs. Like, he didn't put in replay for that. Some other folks decided, oh, you're giving us access to these things. Now we're going to figure out a way to cheat the system. If a student cheats the system in a similar way. In other words, we look at technology and we try to find ways to integrate technology into our classes on a day-to-day -day basis. If a student then finds a way to misuse the technology in order to cheat, we don't say, oh, it's our fault because we brought iPads into the room. We say, hey, listen, our rules around integrity, they still apply to the iPads. And so we still expect you to hold yourself to a higher standard. You're correct in the teacher analogy and that it's not like on the teacher in that case. But the truth is, is that science dealing was super prevalent in baseball before technology was involved. It had to be a concern. You knew that this is a thing that third base coaches, first base coaches, guys at second base, guys are trying to steal these signs all the time anyway. Like, I don't think it's that far of a stretch for him to have been prepared for. And he wasn't prepared if he instituted instant replay in 2014, 15, somewhere in that range. We're only three years later when this whole thing blows up in his face. If we were to say that his major misjudgment is bringing in replay because folks have been cheating beforehand and he should have anticipated that folks were going to use this to cheat, I feel like, whoa, now we're very slippery slope. So essentially anything that's introduced that's new to baseball that then could be used in some way in terms of a misstep, it now falls on the commissioner and I'm not willing to go down that path. For me... I want to look at this particular incident and say, hey, listen, you mismanaged this to the point that we definitively have to have this conversation. Then the question becomes, do we ignore the good that's been done by Rob Manfred for the game of baseball and say he has to be forced to resign based on this? I look at that claim and I don't know that even with the mismanagement of this issue, that this is the issue that we say he has to be forced to resign. Um, so for me, as I look at this claim, I'm balancing those two pieces. And to me, the claim, anytime I have to balance out two significant issues, where well, I think one could potentially be an F. If you look at all the good that Rob Manfred has done for baseball and you said before this scandal, should he be forced to resign, that would be an F claim. Now you look at how he's managed this claim, and of course, it's a very high grade, right, in terms of this singular issue and the way that he's managed it, and that could be an A. So anytime I start balancing this stuff, I end up, with that C, so that's probably where I'm going to end up shaking out on it. All right, Shaka, claim number two. The new schedule and structure introduced through the new collective bargaining agreement is better for the NFL. So the new CBA that's come out is complicated. The notes that Adam Schefter put out on ESPN are three pages long. I would imagine that most folks 
they're not interested in all of the intricacies. The pieces that I think are most most relevant to fans, number one is the potential of adding a 17th game to the regular season, which in reality, in terms of the number of games that are played with preseason and regular season, it's still 20 games. It's just that right now the structure is 16 regular season games for preseason. This new CBA would introduce the idea of three preseason games and 17 regular season games. Along with that shift in the structure of the regular season, they're talking about adding a team to the playoffs as early as this coming season. And that added team to the playoffs would then mean that we would move from having two teams with buys in each conference to only one team in each conference having a buy. So those are all interesting pieces. And so then the question becomes, well, what do the players gain if they're willing to go along with this structure? And you start looking at increased revenue where 48% of the revenue now comes back to the players. Uh, so that means that the cap has to go up uh, proportionately to uh, allow for that spend. The minimum salaries increasing. So there's uh, some good pieces that come back to the players. The question is, is there any amount of money that's going to come in knowing how dangerous a game football is that adding a an extra regular season game is going to somehow balance that for players, especially considering that the NFL has been on a player safety kick. So I agree that the claim is interesting and that it leaves it open because what is better for the NFL does not necessarily mean for the players. As much as my head immediately goes to the players, it doesn't only mean them. I do think it, you know, it must make sense on paper for making money. That's the biggest reason the owners would put it in there. I also, though, when thinking about why the owners put it in there, know that it must be very obviously not in the players' best interest because they very clearly put a bunch of little nuggets in there to try and help players to coerce them into signing on for a 17th game, right? Things like increasing rookie and minimum salaries by about $100,000 a piece, you know, more money going to the players, which is really just going to go to a handful of highly paid players. Like, the quarterbacks are just going to get a little more money. That's not going to get evenly distributed, but whatever, I digress a little bit. The alterations in practice schedules, a big one is the elimination of suspension if you're only testing positive for THC um, versus other substances. I think that's kind of admitting that the world is moving in that direction as far as states legalizing this, that, and the other. Um, I, I just... I wonder if it's really in the overall league's best interest to have guys out there for another full speed game. Um, it it is interesting that they're adding a 17th game and taking away a preseason game because the the argument is like, well, it's just you know shifting the meaning of that game. Da 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 da. Except the players in those two games, the one preseason game they're taking away and the one regular season game they're adding are probably dramatically different players, right? That's one less chance for the guys at the end of the bench to try and make your roster and one more chance for the guys that are on your roster to potentially go out there and throw their bodies around. But I'm like you, Shaka, in that if they add another game to the schedule or shift that game around, I'm going to end up watching it. I'm still going to watch it. I'm going to sit there on a Sunday and watch it. If they add another playoff game because they want to add a seventh playoff team, Wildcard weekend's going to be a little busier, but I'm going to sit there and watch it. I'm not going to stop watching over this. My understanding, based on the reporting that's been done, is that the owners have already signed off on all of the pieces in this new CBA. 
So it almost feels like, are the owners playing a bit of hardball? Like, hey, guys, we've already approved this, so now we're putting it in your court. And if you don't approve this, then, okay, there really is no more negotiation. This is what we like, and now we we go forward with some sort of labor strife. I'm curious as to what the strategy was for ownership because I look at some of the pieces that are here, and I understand that players are going to think that those things are beneficial, and I'm wondering if the players feel like they need more from a CBA that adds another game. No CBA guarantees contracts, I don't believe. I just I think that you know each sport is different, and so folks manage that differently. I'm wondering if the NFL feels like they need to go to something to that level in order to get a 17th game. Like, you need to fully guarantee contracts. I, I don't know. Or you need to get rid of the uh, franchise tag. I don't know. I'm just curious as to what more the players might want. It feels like if this is the first iteration that's come out to the public, then there's probably more iterations that need to be done before anyone agrees as to what they're going to do with the CBA. Well, and I agree with that. I think the other interesting thing on adding a seventh playoff game is is that it does open up a lot of doors for underdog stories. Like, you're a, you're a New Yorker, right? You've seen, I mean, the first time the Giants beat the Patriots Super Bowl, they snuck into the playoffs. They kind of backdoored their way in. Do you open it up to more chances like that? If you had a seventh playoff team, one interesting thing I saw in the reporting on this was that if you just simply added a seventh playoff team, New England would have made the playoffs every year from 2003 to 2019. And if you simply added a seventh playoff team, the 49ers would have made the playoffs every year from 1983 to 1998. Like, you are opening the door to not just having the once-in-a-while giant team come up through the back door. You're opening it to having those dynasties in the mix that much longer. Because a one-game sample size for playoff games tends to have some weird, wonky, crazy stuff happen. You know, obviously, like, the Chiefs may not be the best example from this past season, but you could certainly go to the Eagles a couple of seasons ago. It's like, oh, they backed their way in with Nick Foles at quarterback, right? Um, they were doing great, and then Wentz gets hurt, and Nick Foles is the savior because he wins a handful of games. It really was just a handful of games, but he won the right games. I, I just don't know. I, I'm like you. I'm interested with the player's response is they... Uh, it went. It went to players this weekend, and it had you know players have been vocal about it. What's interesting though, Shaka, is a guy like J.J. Watt being vocal about being against it. He's the one who stands to make the most money on the increased revenue sharing of any vocal player that's been there, right? Because he is a big name that has a big contract, and theoretically, if the salary caps went up he would stand to make some more money because he's a percentage of your cap type of player. He's not necessarily just a standard defensive lineman. Uh, I guess the other way to look at that is if the guys who are at the top, top, top end are against it, if I'm a foot soldier, like, what the hell do I care? Like, just get this thing rolled out so I can get into a training camp and potentially make a team. So I'm wondering if, you know, the top, top, top end players being out is going to have as much of an impact as we would anticipate. I'm wondering if the greater impact would actually be if there were a bunch of foot soldiers who were like, oh my gosh, this thing is not very good versus those top end players uh, really feeling like this is a negative, this is something that has to change. I think you're spot on You're spot on in focusing on the foot soldiers aspect of this, Shaka, in that not only are there far more of them, and it's is a far greater impact on them but you know jj watt even if 
he is more assured of a job next year. He also is the person in the situation that can go without a job for a year, right? He's got the most money. He's got all the endorsements. He's on every billboard in Houston. He's, you know, he's, frankly, his now wife is also a professional athlete if we're focusing on him specifically. He's he's doing okay. Um, That said, I do think that typically the guys that move the needle on pushing guys into signing this are those bigger guys. Not necessarily as big as Watt, but also not as far as the, like, guys at the end of the, you know, 53-man roster, men 50, 51, 52, 53, those guys may not necessarily push the needle a lot either. It's kind of that middle group. But I, I just think he's an interesting guy to look at because he's vocally against this and stands to make the most profit. He already doesn't play all 16 games. What makes you think he's going to play all 17 next year? Like, he, he he's going to do fine, and I think that that's an important aspect of this is he's going to do fine, and he's also against it. So what what players are going to be for it outside of, like you're saying, guys that might be out of a job without it. And so how many of those guys are there that sign off on this, and is it enough to tip the scales their direction and, and we're watching 17 games of football all of a sudden? I don't know who the player reps are, which that's obviously going to have a huge impact as well, right? Because if J.J. Watt's a player rep for Houston, I'm betting that there's a bunch of guys that if he says, hey, we shouldn't sign this, they're just like, okay, J.J., whatever you say, because he's the rep. And I'm wondering, like for each individual franchise, is the player rep a guy who's at that level of stature in terms of someone who's entrenched in the league and knows that they could miss a year and it's not going to be that big a deal for them? Because if that's who the player rep is, then I do think that most teams would probably just go with whatever the player rep says, uh, the player rep to the uh, NFLPA, and it'll just be that, whatever is whatever. I'm just curious in that if a player rep were to be more of a foot soldier type of player would that guy say hey we need to go along with this and then you have guys who are at that highest level who are quarterbacks so on so forth who are willing to say hey we don't need to sign this thing we can hold out i'm wondering if it'll even create a little bit of dissension amongst the nfl pa it's interesting as scrolling through a list of them, they're not always a guy that's necessarily that leader in the locker room. Some guys have clearly gone with someone who's thoughtful and sharp. I mean, the Niners are a unique situation that they have Sherman, who is both sharp when you know went to Stanford and was valedictorian or whatever he was at, at Compton High, but he also is a voice in the locker room. But then, you know, like Tampa Bay's is Ali Marpet. You know, I, I don't know who I would have picked on Tampa Bay, but I wouldn't have thought it was him. Um, he could literally come up and slap me in the face and be like, hey, I'm Allie Marpet. I yeah. have no idea who the hell that guy the was. The Giants are Nate, have Nate Solder, and the Jets are represented by Quincy Inenwa. Uh I probably butchered that, and I'm sorry, Quincy. You're, I'm sure you're a good guy. But the truth is is that like a lot of these have you know guys that are almost, I say, more thoughtful. The Chargers have Mike Fousey. Um No, I, I think... <laughs> <laughs> So as we look at this claim and we think about a grade, I'm thinking, again, about the different constituencies. I think that fans and the owners, it becomes obvious where the benefit lies. If there's more football, owners make more money. If there's more football on television, fans are going to watch. And the one constituency that it feels like does not necessarily overtly stand to benefit from more football in the regular season are the players because of potential for injury and just the health implications of playing 
football at full speed and doing that for another regular season game. And so, I again, I think about these constituencies and they have what seems like some conflicting sentiments with regard to getting the CBA done in the current fashion that we've seen. Uh, I, I'm feeling like this the claim uh, of this CBA, the playoff structure, adding games in the regular season, being better for the NFL, that it's like a D-range claim. Um, if, if the players overtly came out and said, hey, listen, this money's good. The fact that the marijuana testing is being changed is a good thing for us. And they were all, yay, we're gung-ho, we're definitely behind this. I would probably shift my perspective a bit. That being said, J.J. Watt's tweet is carrying a lot of weight with me. And I feel like he's not going to share that sentiment unless that was clearly a prevailing sentiment. J.J. Watt does not strike me as the kind of guy who would definitively go out on that type of a ledge without having some sort of support from other players. Oh, and I, I might give it like a, a C minus. The kid passes because he did something thoughtful, but he didn't. He wasn't. Spe- they weren't specific enough. They were open about like, will this you know schedule be good for the NFL? But it's like you're saying, is it good for who in the NFL? Who's really driving this? The owners want the money. They want more games, right? More games equals more money. More regular season games is more money than more preseason games. It's not good for players. And it's not good for their long-term health, short-term health, whether or not they get to make it through the whole season and into this seven-game, seven-team playoff. Now, um, it's interesting, like you're saying about J.J. Watt. I think he's carrying so much weight because he's the only player of his caliber that's talked out about this so publicly. He's certainly not the only player, and certainly not the only face of the league. But he's certainly not the only player that has spoken out against this. He is the only person that is in the middle of that Venn diagram, though, where. He is a face of the league and is openly against this. Um, it's interesting. He is not the player rep or the alternate rep for Houston. And I wonder if that's his way to put public pressure on his his reps. If he's like, hey, you don't have my backing here, guys. Like He wants to make sure everyone knows that he's not in that meeting and he is not right there talking this through, but he is not in favor. It kind of reminds me of Michael Jordan back in 1998 when the NBA was going through their CBA issues. I think it was the worst kept secret in the world that Michael Jordan was going to retire, but he refused to retire until that CBA was done because he knew he could carry some semblance of clout. And maybe J.J. Watt is in that position where he feels like he can throw his weight around a bit, even though he's not necessarily the rep because he is J.J. Watt. And if he's willing to do that because he genuinely believes that this is something that's not in the best interest of players, then... You're right. I think that a lot of players are going to look at that and say, okay, we got to listen to what JJ's saying. I love the Venn diagram uh, example. Um, I'm wondering how many folks who listen to this pod are familiar with Venn diagrams. Is that a history teacher thing? Or is that like, you think Venn diagram is like common knowledge? I'm just curious. Oh, but I don't know. Everyone went to school, though. It, if you're listening to this, you have no idea. It's the deal with the circles where like the middles overlap and it's like, you put the stuff that both circles have in the middle and the stuff that one circle has only on the outside. And when, again, I don't think it's that complicated concept. I just don't respond. want folks. If you don't know, you know what a <laughs> diagram is, respond to us on Twitter and tell me that I'm speaking way too elevated and convoluted language, apparently. A Venn diagram is pretty simple. I don't know. And we're jocks, by the way. So if we know what a Venn diagram is, the rest of you guys definitely should as well. <laughs> All right, Shaka. Today we have a math lesson. The math lesson for today is... The Elam ending 
can fix the end of basketball games. The All-Star game and the modified version of the Elam ending I thought was pretty awesome. I also like the basketball tournament in the summer. It's literally called the basketball tournament, by the way, for folks who are listening. If you're unfamiliar, TBT, where they do the Elam ending as well. It's interesting. Maybe it's interesting solely because it's different. Based on my understanding of what the Elam ending was meant to prevent, which is kind of the incessant fouling that happens at the end of games in order to extend the games to give the losing team a chance. The Elam ending clearly takes care of that overextension of the game that's incredibly uninteresting, right? No one likes to hack the shack. Where it could get interesting is that I think that you in you institute the Elam ending and you get unanticipated consequences in terms of how it affects stats for players in the fourth quarter. It actually would put a cap at some level on the type of stats that players can get. One of the things that the NBA did with the All-Star game was they instituted the 24-point Elam ending in the fourth quarter to honor Kobe Bryant. And one of the things that I pointed out to you via text was that if you actually went to some model like that for the regular season, and Kobe Bryant's 81-point game would have never happened because he would have been limited to scoring 24 points at the most in the fourth quarter, and he scored more than that, right? And so (laughs) how do we – there's got to be a way to balance – the statistical right. piece, like, would Russell Westbrook have averaged a triple-double for all of those seasons had he not had full fourth quarters in order to be able to do that? So I did a little bit of research for the Elam ending earlier this week, and it's interesting that it's basically this way to avoid the hack-a-shack ending, like you're saying, that a college professor actually came up with named Nick Elam, and he, he teaches at Ball State now. And it, he, he came up with this idea of really watching, or came with this idea from watching bas- college basketball games and being like, man, the last four minutes are a drag because there's like that TV timeout in college basketball around the four-minute mark. And after that, it tends to be teams fouling one another because they have longer shot clocks, takes them longer to score, and so they start the fouling earlier, and it gets a little unbearable. And so what he, in doing all of his math and research, came up with was this idea of seven points in the last four minutes. You know, if the winning team scores seven points, they win way more times than they don't. That's interesting to me on a lot of levels because I also don't like watching hack-a-shack free throws at the end. It's also completely done, however, for college basketball. This is not the same game. The scores are dramatically faster. I'm thinking of, you know, the Rockets played the Clippers earlier this year, and there's a four-point play where Patrick Beverly fouls out after Harden crosses him over, comes back, shoots a rainbow three on the step back, it's an and-one foul on it, makes a four-point play, and they lose the game because Lou Williams hits two threes in the span of, like, 18 seconds. And, like, that six points is worth more than Harden's four. And it just, it separated, it changed the game in a lot of ways. That the truth is that they're moving towards a single score. The four-point play would have been that much more valuable. Now, maybe that means we want it because I obviously want the Rockets to win that game. But that's, that's certainly different than the outcome that happened. I don't, I don't know if you could reconfigure this idea of seven points in four minutes or whatever the NBA math is to it. It is interesting that you brought up, though, that like it would alter endings, but it's not exactly that it would alter every ending because the winning total is added on to the team in the lead. So the comeback, like, you know, if you're the team that's losing, you have more than the seven points or 24 points to go. So you, you could theoretically, like, if the Lakers had been down 10 going into that quarter, he could have scored... 34 points on a 24-point quarter Elam ending, right? Kobe could have in that 81-point game. 
Yeah, and so absolutely. It, and so the truth is, is that it's really the winning team is then capped there. The losing team, it's more about, you know, if you're down 10, can you, you got it 10 plus the 7 or 10 plus the 24. And so that does leave some wiggle room for like, it's not on the clock, but like Reggie Miller's 10 points in, you know, 10 seconds. That happens in 10 seconds, and that's part of the urgency. But he also could have just had 10 straight points to win the game, even though it was an Elam ending of 7 because they were losing, right? I, I don't know I don't know what my answer is as far as it fixed things. I certainly don't think you can just go to an Elam quarter, and I don't know that the math works out where seven points is the right NBA number. I hate the All-Star game ending on a free throw. I like the idea of the Elam ending can do in terms of eliminating the hack-a-shack down the stretch, and Anthony Davis hitting free throws at the end, and we're just all going to go home. I'm not a fan of that at all. It feels like if you're, you got to end the game on a basket. I don't know. I, I One of the things that the Elam ending kind of reminds me of is just playing pickup basketball in the back park. And there's never free throws in the back park, number one. But also, uh, you got to win by two. So like, if the game is close, then you got to, in some way, shape, or form, actually put your opponent away. Uh, and so if you don't win by two, then you can't, you can't say that you're the winner. And maybe some level of that could help the Elam ending even. I, I think that one of the pieces to consider as well, and especially because we're thinking about this with the NBA, uh, I know that with college basketball games, there are definitely a lot of blowouts. I feel like in the NBA, if someone's down 20 going into the last four minutes, it makes no sense to implement an Elam ending. So now i got to score 20 to catch up plus the seven. It's just not going to happen. And so it feels like you're almost implementing this thing, and it, it's, it feels like even more torture. Um, so I think that that would have to be something that the NBA considers as well. Like, what's the magic number where you're blown out a team by enough, we are, we're not going to implement this Elam ending, or we're going to do something different in terms of a modification? I think that that's something worth considering as well. A free throw down the stretch would still, like that free throw, would still go to Anthony Davis's point total and his individual stat sheet or whatever, but instead of giving Team LeBron a point, it should have taken a point away from Team Giannis. And because then it, it doesn't help them win, you can't win on a free throw, but it does hurt Giannis's, or Team Giannis's chance of winning because they move backwards in points. There, it adds a layer of strategy to it because if you're both tied at... In the All-Star game, the score was 157. If you're both tied at 156, do you foul and like make sure that Davis doesn't get a layup off to win the game? He makes both free throws. That's fine. You're only down three. You can go hit three to win the game. You know, like it does add layers of you know complexity and thinking to it without us ending the game at the charity stripe. Because while we know from Davis's first free throws of those two that free throws are not necessarily guaranteed points. They are called free throws. You have a free throw at the basket. <laughs> like I, I don't, I don't want to end it there. I don't, I don't want to end it on those. Think about grading the claim. What's your thoughts? Where, where's this claim going to grade out for you? So the Elam ending can fix the end of basketball. Is an interesting claim because it doesn't say you don't have to adjust it, right? The Elam ending is made for college basketball, and you would have to adjust numbers and so on. I. I just don't know that I'm ready to change basketball games. I think, again, there are other fixes, including things like 
making your big guys shoot free throws better. I mean, we're seeing bigger and bigger players that shoot the ball well anyway. I think that the truth of this is just if you got a guy that's crappy at free throws, it's going to be tough to play him in the last four minutes of a basketball game, and maybe he should work on his free throws. I don't. I'm not. I'm not a fan of it. I don't. I don't think that it's going to fix basketball games. Um, I. I kind of give it a. I'm. I, I'm gonna give it a D. Honestly, I don't think it fixes basketball games. Well, I'm going to be even more harsh than you are. I'm failing this claim because there's an insinuation that's implied with the claim that basketball games are broken. Basketball games aren't broken. <laughs> basketball games are fine. I love basketball. I watch my NBA. I watch my college. I watch high school. Listen, I'll watch a competitive pickup game if teams are getting after it. There's nothing wrong with basketball. As you mentioned, there may be strategy pieces that we don't enjoy, but there are also fixes that are well within the game and the structure of the game that will deter those types of strategies. If you don't want a team to play zone, hit threes. If you don't want... Teams to dunk on you, pack line. If you don't want teams to extend the end of the game, hit your free throws. And there we go. I fixed basketball, and it didn't have anything to do with an Elam ending. It just had to do with what we yeah. already know about basketball. We you know what the, ball is, man. Yeah, you put the the round thing and the circle thing more times, you win the game. Like, that's not complicated. <laughs> like, just yeah, listen, James Naismith had it right, and he his name ain't Elam. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> All right, so that's it for FN Sports this week. Uh, Parker, as we look forward to next week, I checked out our Twitter. I saw that we got a tweet from uh, handle Sick Tweets Bro. Um, incidentally, Sick Tweets Bro gave us a thread, so he really should be Long Tweets Bro. But um, <laughs> he gave us a little something about the NBA dunk contest and our claim that we looked at last week. Just talking about the judging and thinking that you know, we wouldn't necessarily have to go to professional judges if we kind of switched up the judging style. I'm curious as to what you think. I agree. I guess we don't have to go to, like, professional judges, but we probably should have people that have, like, dunked basketballs. Like, So, like, the idea of having Common judge the creativity of a dunk is fine. He's a really creative person, but he also, I don't know how many basketballs Common's ever dunked, right? Or, like, I don't, I mean, I love Black Panther and Wakanda Forever and the whole nine, but, like, does he get to be an expert on the power of a dunk i don't know like i i, I don't know if i if i necessarily agree that it doesn't have to be experts it, it does it doesn't have to be an expert expert but it should be someone who's dunked a basketball and maybe the connection there in terms of professional is just um making sure there's nba players who are from those cities and maybe that's enough of a connection uh, i definitely feel like there's some semblance of expertise if you're going to be involved in judging and so um i don't know if we're giving out trophies i've I would feel a lot more comfortable losing the trophy if Dominique Wilkins told me I couldn't dunk than if Chadwick Boseman <laughs> told me I couldn't dunk. You know what I'm saying? Um, so as we wrap up this week, uh, Parker, you want to give folks your socials? Yeah, so you can find me on Twitter or Instagram at uh, painsworth 512 That's at painsworth 512 on both Twitter and Instagram. Uh, and then we also have our show's Instagram. You can follow us now on it's at f underscore in underscore sports on instagram uh, we also have a twitter the twitter is at fn sports 2 um all one word at fn sports 2 on twitter how about yourself shock so i'm at shocker cummings on twitter i went ahead and made my uh, instagram public as well so i'm at shocker cummings there so please uh respond we love to interact let us know what you think of the claims like respond share do all that good stuff because obviously all that stuff helps us out Thank you guys so much for listening to the pod. We'll be back next week with more claims. 
to grade out. Just remember, when it comes to sports, don't funk with us. Later, guys. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary, void, or prohibited by law. 18+. plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Hi, I'm Maria. And I'm Mike. And we're Team Ready. Ready. Black Hills Energy knows your home is where your heart is. So they want you to be ready. It's all about keeping you safe, prepared, and making your home as energy efficient as possible. Everything from how to weatherize your home to how to stay safe during extreme weather. Be ready for anything. Go to blackhillsenergy.com slash team ready.